You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. The following is a message from NOFA NY. Do you dig local food? Love organic farmers? Do you crave to be part of a growing movement of consumers concerned with the state of our nation's food system? Then sign up today to take the NOFA NY's Locavore Challenge this September. Join 5,000 other New York Locavores that are hungry, active, and ready to change our food system. Learn more at www.nylocavorechallenge.com. Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Bogota, Colombia. Calling all of your questions to the studio in Brooklyn at 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Nastasha the Hammer Lopez is sitting at the studio in Brooklyn. How are you doing, Nastasha? Good. How are you doing? Yeah, all right. Uh, I was supposed to be doing Cooking Issues today from Brooklyn, but uh, due to the hurricane, which Nastasha apparently wasn't much of a big thing in our area anyway, my flight was canceled, and here I am in Bogota. Right. Nothing yep. happened down there, right? Nothing. You have a caller. I know you want to take. Oh, I have a caller. Yeah. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, Dave. How are you doing? It's Kevin from Virginia Beach. Hey. I got a question about um. I got some calcium hydroxide flake lime, and I was thinking right. about um different ways to use it since I got a lot of it, and I was thinking maybe you could use it for spherification, but I'm concerned about it interacting with sodium alginate and producing lye, and if that would be a problem. I was wondering if you have any experience with that. Uh, well, let me think here. No, I don't think it'll do that because, um, no, I don't think it'll do that because, you know, you you add salt all, of this, all, all the time to, uh, uh, you, you add salt all the time to, uh, to things that have calcium hydroxide in them. And it, I mean, cal- um, yeah, calcium hydroxide in them, it's not a problem. So, you know, in order to form the lye, you need to, you need to start with sodium and then have the uh, hydroxide already attached to it and, and then put it in. You're starting with calcium hydroxide, which is much weaker, so it's not, it's not going to be, not going to be an issue. Think about it this way. If you add, um, pure lye and pure, uh, hydrochloric acid, right, mm-hmm. you don't retain the powers of those two things. You just end up with salt and water. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. So, so do you think it would work, and do you think it would taste okay? Uh, okay, so those are two separate questions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, look, it, it, look, it can't taste worse than calcium uh, calcium chloride does. Calcium chloride's horrible, but I think the real problem with it is that calcium uh, hydroxide has a, a very low solubility. So mm. I don't think that you would uh, necessarily get enough calcium in there to have it uh, set properly. I mean, it's interesting. I've never tried it. Um, you, you know, calcium hydroxide um, saturates very quickly. So typically, you act if you're going to make something like a soaking solution for uh, bananas, like Thai style, you can like mix it with uh, you know water, let it settle out to the bottom, pour the stuff off up the top, and that's basically saturated uh, calcium hydroxide. Yeah, that's what uh, I Water. And, what? And it tastes like it tastes like uh, cement to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether that will set alginate or not. Um, you, know, you have to see. You just have to drop a couple. It'd be easy to test. You just have to drop a couple of uh, pearls into it uh, and see whether it sets it. Um, 
but you know, you can try it. It'd be interesting. Let us know. Let us know what happens. I mean, we use it for uh, obviously for nixtamalizing corn. It's the primary thing we use it for. Uh, if you were here in Colombia, you could chew it with coca leaves to release the uh, alkaloids. Although I'm not necessarily advocating that. Um, you can use it to harden vegetables. Uh, you can use it to uh, well keep things uh, firm while preserving the color when you're cooking them. It's really good stuff, you know? Yep. Okay, awesome. I'll give it a shot and I'll let you know. All right, thanks a lot. All right, thank you. Uh, all right, so, Colombia is... Colombia has some amazing fruits, Nastasha. I figured you were going to say that. Yeah, amazing fruits. In fact, one of the reasons I wanted to come down here was to taste all the fruits. And uh, we went out partying after one of the events with uh, the ambassador to Colombia from the United States. And uh, I was like, hey, come on, you know, any way you can slip some of those fruits in the bag, you know? And no, he's like, no way. There's no way. Mm-hmm. There's no way we can get the fruits uh, up in uh, up in New York and shipped into the United States. And it's a shame. They got the, one of the main fruits over here that they got that I really like. It's called uh, Lulo. And it, it's hard to describe these damn things, but let me put it this way. If you were going to come open a cocktail bar down here in Bogota, uh, you could do some pretty serious drinks. This Lulo drink like, has some natural hydrocolloid in it. I don't know. It, it, forms a, it forms a head, almost like you were shaking with an egg white. Pretty cool stuff. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, if we have time later, I'll just go down some of the crazier uh, fruits uh, that we had. Uh, yeah. So let us get to some email questions. Boop, boop, boop. Okay. Andrew writes in, and he says, Andrew Switzer, Dear Dave, as a former career barista, uh, espresso, this is a question about espresso, a career uh, barista, I'm wondering if you can share more info on your home espresso setup. I know some of the various requirements to have a professional home machine, but I need help with the practical how-to and setup. Also, if it seems to be too big a job for my apartment, do you have any advice for achieving foaming milk for coffee lattes at home? My wish is a stovetop steaming device capable of achieving microfoam at 140 with a traditional metal steam wand. Thanks a bunch. All right, uh, Andrew, here's the deal. I've had uh, in my life two professional espresso machines uh, and two different weird kind of home uh, machines. Um, the professional machine is the way to go. If you're independently wealthy then and you have a lot of space, then uh, to purchase like, a two-group uh, espresso machine. Uh, and install it in your house. Here are the problems. Uh, two-group espresso machine, and I bought one used at an auction. Uh, you know, I went into, it was a, uh, this place was shut down as a result of uh, drug activity in, um, in, you know, like in the upper hundreds in Manhattan on Broadway. It was a restaurant. And they locked the restaurant shut. And uh, when they reopened it a year later, all the food was rotting. And so no one else wanted to be in that auction but me. I was the only person who was willing to stomach the stench of this place to go in and purchase equipment. So I got a, um, a fairly you know, nice two-group Ranchilio espresso machine uh, for almost nothing. Of course, I then had to disassemble it and boil all the parts to get out all the nasty stuff that had accumulated and like, animals had made their house, whatever. Anyway, so I got it to work. The uh, problem with these larger machines is the larger machines uh, take a lot of electricity. So that one required like a big uh, 220 circuit. Um, the good news is, is well, that makes better espresso than the equivalent one-group machine. And the reason is that in traditional uh, espresso machines, they use the, the mass of the equipment to provide 
um, the stability, the temperature stability, and also the ability to have like huge amounts of steam on demand. So that machine even you know made better espresso than the single group professionals machine that I have now, which is a La San Marco. The problem is I didn't have 220. I wasn't able to install it. So if you don't have 220 or if you don't have a lot of electricity, you can get a commercial one-group machine that will run off of 110. And if you have a lot of money, you can buy very temperature-stable one-group machines uh, that run off of 110, uh, but they're very expensive, uh, the professional ones, like the dual boiler or any of these ones that have very accurate temperature control. Very expensive. Um, so you have to make a choice of how much electricity you're going to have. Secondly, you have to make sure that the coffee machine can live near a sink. Uh, so what you do is, is you put it near a sink. Um, you put a, a, a go under where, the, where your sink line is, the line in. Go to your cold water tap. Install a filter on your cold water. You know, unscrew it. Put in a T where the uh, water comes in. Install uh, another branch off of that, which is very simple. This is all Home Depot, like you know one-hour problems, no big deal. Install a water filter on it. Make sure you put a shut-off valve beforehand so you can change the water filter without everything going wrong. You then, under the sink there, place the pump for your espresso machine. If you have an external pump, and most pro machines have an external pump, uh, you put it down there, and then you run, um, you run the power wire to the, uh, to the pump and the uh, drain and the, um, sorry, the, uh, the input line in right up, and then what's really good is to drill an extra large hole. Oh, by the way, you're drilling a hole in your counter. Uh, did I mention this? You're drilling a hole in your counter uh, behind the espresso machine that can make it into uh, underneath your sink. Uh, then you want to install a drain hose, which they're not very big, uh, and then tap that into um, you know, it, the equivalent of a, of a uh, basically a, like a disposal or a washing machine, a washing machine drain. Uh, that goes into the thing. You want to plug it into another one of those so that your machine, uh, so your espresso machine can drain. Uh, and make sure that your espresso machine is always above the level of your sink, so you can't, uh, you know, have backups uh, um, on, onto the floor out of your espresso machine if your drain clogs up. Uh, and that's basically it. I mean, uh, it's it, you know, it sounds like it's a lot, but you know, if you have a drill and you can go and drill in, uh, you're set. Uh, you know, then you want to make sure you have a place that you can knock out espresso grounds. So you're going to want to, uh, you know, either to take a, a small, you can buy one, or you can make a knock, a knock, a knock box. Uh, and it's helpful to have a trash can nearby. Uh, but that's it. It's pretty simple. Um, they, um, you know, as, as regards to if you're not going to get a professional machine, uh, you know, I haven't used anything that does a very good steaming job. Uh, that wasn't a uh, pro machine um, because, you know, it's just, you, it can be done. I mean, if you go to coffeegeek.com, those people will sit around and make amazing uh, foam with uh, home machines, but it's just, you know, they, I think they, they're always sucking wind a little bit because they don't have as much of a steam capacity as, let's say, even a single group uh, 110 machine. Uh, but that said, you can do this all very cheaply uh, if you scrounge around and you can have... And let me tell you this, it is extreme pleasure to just be able to use a freaking espresso machine like Nature intended it, which is having it plumbed into your water supply and um, having it, you know, drain into your, uh, into your drain. Even if you don't have a commercial espresso machine, you can usually plumb them by putting a, uh, a level sensor and a, and, a, and a solenoid valve to uh, allow you to put high pressure from your you know, mains, uh, which is like 40, 50 PSI, 
put that into a gravity-fed container and espresso machine. So there you have it. Hey, Nastasha, did you know that Bogota is over 8,000 feet high, and I haven't had to do this much talking in a row on a phone, and I'm actually feeling winded from the altitude? Wow. Wow. More you than, there? More than, more than when you ride your bike here and come in? What did you say? I said you feel more out of breath than when you arrive here after you've ridden your bike through Brooklyn? Uh, well, I guess that's true, but you can't let yourself mellow out when you're, uh, <laughs> when you're in Bogota. There's, yeah. no, there's no mellowing out. Yeah. The weird thing is that I didn't feel, I haven't felt that windy the whole week. It's just, uh, I guess it's just uh, because of uh, the, the talking at high speed. Because when I was doing my demonstration here, it's the first time, like I said, I had to be uh, done in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And so it's weird having to constantly stop and, like, give, like, three sentences, wait, give three sentences, wait, give three sentences. Oh, That's uh, very strange. Yeah. Very, very, very strange. All right. Uh, Jason Yee writes in a question on eggs. So I know Dave's done quite a bit on low-temperature egg cooking, including the chart recently published in uh, David Chang's Lucky Peach magazine, which that we've used that chart. How many times have we used that chart, Nastasha? Many. Harvard uses it, too. Who? Harvard. Yeah, Harvard's using it. It's in popular science. One. That, that chart is, like, all over, all over the place. Anyway, but I was wondering if you guys had any tips for other eggs, quail, duck, etc., I'm assuming times would need to be adjusted for different egg sizes, but what about the composition of eggs? Are substances in different eggs different? And if they're the same as chicken eggs, is the ratio of substances the same? All right. Well, Jason, unfortunately, I don't have uh, or didn't until right before this happened uh, have enough Wi-Fi time to research the exact composition of what's going on in these eggs. I will say this. Chicken eggs and duck eggs, uh, and quail eggs for that matter, are different. Um, it, the, the proteins in them are different. They're fairly similar, right? But they are uh, different. And the reason I know this is because when you treat uh, eggs with uh, lye and salt, which is something we do for the Harold McGee class, uh, and uh, I really like them. I think we, we have it on the blog. Nastasha, remember it's on the blog from a couple of years ago. Yes. Uh, you can just look up lye and eggs. And um, that lye basically... Um, denatures the protein slightly, makes it uh, less able to bond with itself, uh, which makes it such that it stays clear even when it's cooked. Uh, so that's pretty cool. And, you know, the, um, it doesn't work as well in chicken eggs as it does in duck eggs and quail eggs. So you know that there's fundamentally a difference between uh, those two, those three eggs. Um, quail, interestingly, and duck work better than uh, chicken. Now, I haven't done uh, a lot, as far as cooking them goes, I haven't done a lot of experimentation to figure out what temperature, uh, whether there's a temperature difference. I know that a duck egg and a quail egg are going to be runny at 62 uh, because I've done them. Uh, and I know that a quail egg will still get slightly, you know, that creaminess that you would normally get at 63 Celsius, right, which is weird. But quail eggs cook much faster, and I think they also uh, can drift into overcooks much faster. A quail egg is done in like, you know, under 15, uh, way under 15 minutes. You know what I mean? It's like, it gets done quick. And quail eggs, though, when you do a quail egg in a circulator, they're difficult to, uh, to get out the way you would get out a chicken egg. So what I normally do is you get like one of those, uh, t- one of those like cigar cutting things that are not for, cig- they're for quail eggs, and you chop the top and the bottom, not just the top, to get the egg out, the top and the bottom, and then you can shake the egg out and you can get, like, you know, um, you know, most of the eggs will come out uh, properly. Whereas if you try to do it via cracking, uh, you're going to lose, 
you know, like half of your eggs. So if you're going to low-temperature circulate a quail egg, you're going to want to get something that can chop the top and the bottom of the um, shell off. Um, duck eggs, I haven't had a lot of experience with. I mean, I know they're still creamy at 62, but I don't know whether they'll set, ex you know, exactly at 64 and be creamy at 63. They're obviously going to have to cook longer because they're, um, because they're bigger. Um, but, you know, you know, more interesting thing on eggs is, uh, and, and relating to uh, the proteins and basicity is, uh, and I, I think we put this in Eater last week, is uh, you need to add a little bit of, uh, if, you, if you're having problems peeling your eggs, if you add a little bit of baking soda to the water, apparently it helps. And, um, and uh, that's a Harold McGee trick uh, because it makes it more alkaline. It makes it so the proteins in the eggs bond less strongly to the membrane in the shell when you peel it, which is kind of cool. Uh, I asked uh, Wiley whether they do that at the restaurant, and uh, that, the restaurant being WD-50. And indeed they do, but they say that peeling eggs is still a, uh, a pain in the butt. Um, all right. So, uh, by the way, uh, before I forget, I said on the blog a couple of weeks ago that uh, that dragon fruit is uh, a, you know a gross, awful uh, tropical fruit, and I got a couple people telling me that I was wrong, and I was like, well, look, I'm willing to be proven wrong. Well, I came down here to Colombia, and I had uh, a fruit called pitaya. Pitaya is another basically word for a type of dragon fruit. The ones they get down here are yellow, and lo and behold. Um, it tastes good. I like it. So I found a dragon fruit that I like. Also, you know, Nastasha, you remember how I hate papaya? Yeah. Yeah, I hate it, right? I mean, I, I like a green papaya, like a crunchy papaya, but I hate myself a, uh, a ripe papaya in the States. It smells like, like nothing you'd want. Like, alternately, hey, sometimes it smells like a diaper. Sometimes it smells like a vomit. You know, this smell good. Do you like them? No, no, I don't. No, they're awful, right? Here, they're actually good. In fact, in Colombia, right, you're not supposed to you're not supposed to walk around the streets of Colombia showing off that you have a lot of bling. This is not a bling-oriented society when you're walking around the streets. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for obvious, and the security here is is intense. You know what I mean? They're still because they're still, I guess, you know, worried about um, I guess problems. Anyway, so uh, the the local phrase is to show you how good the papayas are here compared to where they are in the states. If the local phrase here is uh, don't give papaya out. In other words, if you, show, if you have this papaya out that you're giving out, that they, people are going to come take it and take more. You know what I mean? So it's like that papaya is so ingrained that like the, the kind of national statement for like, you know, don't flash your bling is basically don't flash your papayas. <laughs> Cute. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, okay. Do, 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 going up. I have a question from Chris about uh, bloom strength of... You have a caller in case you want to do that first. All right. All right. Caller, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Um, my name is Jesse. I have a question about uh, juice extractors. And okay. I was wondering, um, for under 300 bucks, is there one that you recommend highly? Okay, well, what kind of juice? I'm juicing vegetables and fruits. Okay, but not citrus? No, not citrus, no. And not sugar cane? And not sugar cane, no. And not um, wheatgrass? No, not wheatgrass either. Okay, because uh, those, are, those are tough. Um, so the one that we typically use uh, in the school and that almost every chef has, and they can be had for well under $300, uh, is the uh, champion juicer, okay? The champion. And the champion okay. juicer, basically the way it works is it's got an auger and then little teeth, and it just, you know, you push the stuff through, and pulp 
tooth out the front and juice goes down the bottom. Um, and you can even put the pulp through a second time if you want to. It can also grind peanuts and it can grind cocoa nibs to make chocolate. It, you know, it, it, it's good. It's a good machine. Um, it, you know, it tends to heat your juice up a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Um, oh, yeah. yeah. So if you're having a problem with your juice overheating, and especially when I make it, I tend to force the stuff down the throat of the machine so quickly that, like, it tends to overheat. I have had, um, I have had the base of the champion, the motor, like, almost catch on fire and, and like, uh, you know, I've, I've melted the internal componentry of it. But that's after, like, you know, like an, uh, over an hour of continuous, heavy, like, you know, basically, I, when I juice like that, I juice as if I was going to the gym and working out. You know what I'm saying? So it's, uh, it's you know, that's not going to happen that much. For more money, um, some people like the Green Star juicer, which is basically a set of gears that mashes the stuff. However, from, I've never used one. People that I know that have used it have said that the yield is not nearly as high with um, the Green Star as it is with the Champion. Now, there are okay. a bunch of other juices that I've seen um, on the web and even seen kind of in person that seem to that work on different principles, right, that work like centrifugal, so they grind it and then, and then centrifugally separate it out. Um, and some of these purportedly make very good juice. The problem is, is that they, a lot of them don't have a lot of capacity. So if you're making a little bit of juice, right, they're okay. But if you want to make a boatload of juice, like if you're doing a party or if you have a, you know, a lot of people coming over or whatever, then you're not going to want to sit around and, and burn out a smaller juicer. You're going to want something that maybe is um, a little bit less, uh, maybe has a little bit less um, yield on extraction, maybe warms up a little bit, but it's kind of a, a robo-monster, right, which is what the champion is. Yeah. So I actually don't have a lot of information on the other kind, on the kind that is like a little bit uh, slower, maybe a little bit more gentle, but can't handle a lot because I can't personally use a piece of equipment that can't pump out, you know, a gallon of juice in a reasonable amount of time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and, you know, it, I, although I have to say, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, if you have a bajillion dollars, if all, if all of a sudden you win the lottery, go out and buy a NutraFaster, like the professional ones that you see that look like, uh, that look like a, a, a tower at an airport and have a tube coming yeah. out of them. Yeah, yeah, I went to a, a. I never used one before because I, you know, I've never worked in like you know one of these places that juices for a living. But and by the way, none of these juicers will do wheatgrass, sugar cane, and they're not for citrus, which is why I asked you those questions. Um, mm. But you put, you know, you, when you put an apple in a Champion juicer, you have to push on it to get it to come out, right? And that's just what it is. When right. you, uh, you know, when I put an apple into the NutraFaster thing, I felt like it was going to suck my arm down into it. That's how thirsty it was to eat these apples. You know what I mean? So uh, yeah, all respect right. to that machine. The other machine that some people like, it's very expensive, is the Norwalk, which is basically a press. But again, I've never used it. I don't know how concerned you are about um, heat changing it versus just you want it easy to clean, can pump out a whole bunch of juice. Um, yeah, know, are you more much. in that category? You want it to be okay? Yeah, I'm more in that. Yeah. well and pump out a boatload of juice when you need it, but not necessarily need to do that much. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I'd use a champion. Have you used it before? Um, I think I've used it once in a restaurant. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Most yeah. people have them, you know, um, and most people we're we're usually fairly fairly happy with them. Uh, I you know I don't know how much more it costs to get the commercial one. The commercial one basically uh, has a stainless shaft and better bearings on the motor uh, versus the home machine. Um, otherwise, I think they're fairly 
similar, and it's easy to get replacement parts for it. And uh, I don't know anyone that doesn't like their champion. Let me put it that way. Okay. Well, great. All right. Well, thanks a lot, All right, Dave. Cool. Good luck with it. Thanks. Bye. Let's take a break, Bye. Dave. So, Nastasha, you think we should go to the first break? Yeah. All right, calling all your questions to 718-497-2128, 718-497-2128, cooking issues. Columbia, where the weather is always like fall. It's crazy. It's like fall here all the time. I actually like the weather a lot. Oh. Pretty good. Yeah. You know, because you, you, even though we're on the equator, it's it's like so high up in the mountains that it's always kind of like, uh, it's like basically fall weather, like early fall weather, which I enjoy. If you go to Medellin, which is, you know, it's also in the mountains, but like slightly lower, they call that one eternal spring because it's like 10 degrees warmer than here, so it's always springtime there. Wow. Always. Nice. The, the only, like literally nothing changes weather-wise. They have a rainy season where maybe it rains more, but like weather-wise, the temperature, it's it always the same. It's crazy, right? Cool, yeah. Then I went, we went down to Cartagena, which is like on the water, and that is freaking humid. Oh. Um, freaking humid. Anyway, uh, call on your questions. Still time to call on your questions, too. 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. By the way, more on Columbia. Uh, guys down here, incredibly nice. Incredibly nice. Uh, I should probably do a, a blog post on By the way, I haven't had blog posts. I've been internet challenged uh, uh, often when I'm down here, and telephone challenged, and cash challenged. Do you know that they? I came down here, uh, and uh, my bank, Chase, uh, you know, decided that they, when I asked them for a replacement card, that they would give me a temporary card. You know what temporary cards don't do? Give money. They don't take money out of banks internationally. So we've been, I've been like basically mooching off of my new friends here in Colombia, uh, you I know, just, for the last week. I tried week to and wire half. you money two days ago, and you never gave me the code. Uh, I don't, I don't understand how it works. I don't even, anyway, whatever. What, we will do with it. All I'm just saying is that travelers who are going abroad, please get your financial crud straightened out before you go, or you could be a moron like Dave Arnold. That's basically the point, right? Yes. Anyway, so. Uh, Chris writes in about the bloom strength of gelatin. Can you explain how to convert between different bloom strengths of sheet gelatin? I have a recipe that calls for silver strength at 160 bloom, but only have gold strength, 200 bloom handy. Thanks. Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, bloom force, bloom, is, an, is kind of a, a weird definition of the strength of gelatin. And literally what it is is you, they take a, a gelatin, it's been cured, you know, for like, you know, 17 hours, 
at a very specific temperature, like 10 Celsius, right, at, at a very specific concentration, like uh, 6, 6 and two-thirds, 6.666%, right? Uh, and they push a... Um, they push a little plunger that they make standard into it, and they figure out how much force it takes to push that plunger four millimeters into the surface of the gel, right? And they give you that force in grams, and that's what Bloom is. And, by the way, most of the measures used in foods are weird, crazy, lunatic things like this, where some dude in a factory was sitting around saying, hey, listen, I've got to figure out how to measure this crap. And so he makes this, like, he's like, now this is the standard for all time. So he, like, I don't know, he uses whatever he wants, a ball, a cone, a pen, whatever. But he makes the standard for all time. It's named after him, Bloom, and he pushes it in, and he writes the uh, stuff down. So this is how the food industry works. So the question is, how do you convert it? So you can't just simply, and, uh, you know, other places have published, you can't just simply, exchange, like, say, hey, I have one that's a, a 200 bloom. I'm making these up to make math easier for me. I have one that's a 200 bloom and one that's a 100 bloom, so I'm just going to use twice of the 100 bloom, right? It, it, doesn't make, it doesn't make sense. Here's another thing. People like to use a uh, number of sheets of gelatin when they use sheet gelatin to kind of figure out what's going on. But the fact of the matter is, is that typically you buy sheet gelatin uh, in grades, right? Platinum, silver, bronze, gold, right? Uh, and the thing is, is that as it goes down the line, platinum is the strongest gel. It it's, usually has the highest bloom strength. It's usually the clearest gel that doesn't have any brown, right? Some of the lower strength gels uh, have undergone some hydrolysis. There can be some browning in them. It's like they're not as, you know, they're not as good looking, not as clear. Anyways, the lower the strength of gel, typically, like uh, the higher, uh, the higher the weight of each sheet is, because they're attempting to um, keep. Uh, the gelling power per sheet similar. Does that make sense? But if you're going to substitute uh, a weight, uh, then you have to do some sort of conversion. Now, uh, a, as you change the concentration of gelatin, right, you're not, uh, it doesn't scale. So in other words, if you double the concentration, you don't get exactly twice the, uh, you don't get twice the strength of the gel. Typically, uh, you get much more than twice the strength of the gel, right? So you, you can't do a straight conversion. A very good uh, uh, thing to look at on the web is something called a gelatin summary and conversion. And it's a really useful, like, four-page Word document that you can download right off the thing by uh, AUI. There's a, a Albert Uster Imports, and there, Nastasha, you'll be happy to know that they're Swiss, right? Mm. And uh, they provide uh, the formula uh, where you take... Uh, and you multiply uh, by the square root of the ratio of the bloom strength. So it does, it's not going to make much sense, but I'll put it to you this way. If you have a 200 bloom strength gel, right, and you want to figure out how much to use of 140 bloom, you do 200 divided by 140, right, and then you take the square root of that. And so if you needed, uh, and this is an example right off their sheet. I'm reading it off their sheet, so don't say I'm plagiarizing. It's right there. Uh, if you have 10 grams of 200 bloom gelatin, and but you you know the recipe calls for 10 grams of 200 bloom, but you want to use one that's 140 bloom, you take 10 times the square root of 200 over 140, and uh, that is uh, how many grams of the uh, lower bloom strength gelatin you want to use. And the reason for the square root there is, as I say, that it's not a linear it's not a linear thing. Um, Anyway, I hope that helps, and you should read that uh, read that little paper because it's kind of cool. Anyway, it's got lots of kind of cool pictures, and uh, it's titled "Gelatin Summary," and that's what she is. It also gives interestingly stuff that you don't. Uh, it has a bunch of actual conversions uh, for 
known things like how to convert uh, platinum sheet weight to Knox powder weight, how to convert uh, Knox powder weight to gold weight. And by the way, Knox powder, which is the one, Nastasha, that we use yeah. uh, when we're doing uh, our gelatin work, is actually pretty darn good. It's got like, uh, it's, it's between uh, platinum and, and gold and actually closer to platinum. So that's pretty good, right? Yeah, that's really good. Bueno, yeah. So Knox gelatin, even though it's in the supermarket, turns out to be a serious uh, butt kicker, right? Nice. Yeah, nice, nice. All right, so uh, I tried coca tea, by the way. How was it? Yeah, it's yeah, fine. It's like, you know, uh, it's, uh, yeah, we went to the, like, highest point in Bogota, which is uh, Monserrate, which is, like, you have to take up this, like, crazy tram up to the top, and it's, you know, it's way up there, and they have this like little uh, market over there, and uh, so they sell all kinds of local Colombian products, and one of which is uh, uh, coca tea, which is basically just the coca leaves. And I tried it, and you know, I didn't, I didn't feel, uh, I didn't feel anything really. It didn't, you know, didn't uh, do anything to me as far as I know. And someone got me a bag of the leaves, but I'm pretty sure they're illegal to bring back to the United States. And since I'm flying around from here to Panama and Panama to the United States with a bag loaded with knives and, uh, and white powders loaded in Ziploc bags, mm -hmm. I don't think I'm going to take the chance of actually having any cocoa products on me. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think that's smart. It's wise, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I... I, I I'm not exactly sure how the law goes. I should have researched it before I before I came in, but uh, I'm thinking that this is going to have to stay with some friends in in Colombia. There's no way I'm going to try and bring this back on the. Can you imagine? Can you imagine like they find the coca bags and then they find like all the bags of like xanthan gum and and uh, you know it's be crazy, yeah. crazy. Yeah. Bad news. Horrible. Horrible idea. I mean, I've had some bad ideas before, but I think that might be the most horrible of all. Yes. Oh, it's interesting. Uh, in terms of coca, you know. Uh, there's uh, a lot of, obviously, controversy uh, about the growing of cocoa because it's used to make cocaine, which is then shipped to the United States and causes many problems, et cetera, et cetera. But what's interesting is that we went to a museum called the Gold Museum down here, uh, and it's all about pre-Columbian gold. And this, you know, the coca as a product has been used by uh, the people around here for like 10 bazillion years. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the gold implements that they had way, way, you know, way before anyone uh, showed up, it, you know, demonstrate that this is they they use this. Not, I'm not talking about refined cocaine, but like this as a um, as basically a normal part of their daily life. They had you know they would have uh, pouches that like beautiful gold. If you were rich, most people would use just hollowed out gourds, but like gold pouches to carry the uh, lime. They would burn shells of calcium hydroxide to use to activate the uh, coca leaf strongly. So it's it's interesting. It's really you know part of the historical culture here, which makes it a little bit more difficult. Um, to say that we should try to stop people from growing it. Don't you think? It's kind of a interesting little question. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. <laughs> All right. So Brian writes in uh, with uh, several questions, and so we'll try to uh, hit some. I'm going to go in reverse order. All right, Brian. Brian bought some malic acid and some citric acid at the homebrew store. Good news. I want to use them in cocktails and other stuff, such as jams, pâté de fouille, uh, any other acids I should get. Any thoughts on the best application? Well, yes. In fact, uh, you can get some tartaric acid. Although, if you have citric and malic, citric and malic are the two baller acids. If you have citric, and mal citric acid and malic acid, uh, you can do a lot, right? Malic acid is the acid that is typical in apples, right? Apples, malice. Uh, and citric acid is the acid that's typical in lemons. Now, 
Um, and if you taste them by themselves in small quantities, like they taste like the warhead that they're that they're you know the apple warhead, and the other one tastes like the lemon warhead. Warhead is a candy, if you you know, or the sour patches. If you uh, buy tartaric acid, like that's one of the main acids in grapes, and so that provides uh, a grapey note. Uh, if you mix two parts of citric acid to one part malic acid, you get the acidic flavor of uh, lime, which is the one that I use most. And I use it as a corrective, right? So if you don't want to add limes or, you know, if you just want to correct the acidity of a juice slightly, um, we use these acids all the time. If you jack them too much, you tend to throw the juice out of balance. Wouldn't you say so, Nastasha? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Some other acids I would get are uh, lactic acid in powder form, which can give alternately like a sour, crowdy, or a sausagey taste, depending on the application, because it's, you know what happens when lactic acid, um, uh, you know, interacts. Uh, it, that's a good one. Uh, I use one called uh, Sixinic, but I don't recommend getting it. It just makes very, very authentic uh, lime juice, but it's very hard to get. The lactic, lactic, I use tiny amounts of it. The lactic acid, the um, and the malic acid, the citric acid, tartaric acid, uh, are all pretty much available. I think from homebrew and wine shops. The other one, obviously, you should get is ascorbic acid, which is vitamin C, which is a very good uh, antioxidant if you're making apple juice uh, and whatnot. Um, but uh, there, you know, there's some acids I want to get a hold of that I don't have, like quinic, which is astringent and is, is a part of the characteristic stuff in things like apples. Um, but I don't have a source for it yet. Uh, I want to try, you know, tiny quantities of other bizarre acids, but. Uh, until I find, I won't, I can't talk much about them until I find a, a source for them. Uh, but it's good news, you're going to love that. We always love having that stuff around, um, just to, like I say, correct acidity. If you're going to make a soda and it has to last a long time, then you can use a malic citric blend with simple syrup to approximate lime. And then if you squeeze a little fresh lime or peel in at the end, you get a good lime back out. But I mean, nothing beats the real thing. Right, Nastasha? That is right. Ain't nothing like the real thing. Anyway, okay. Second question. Uh, this is Brian speaking again. I have made my own vinegar. It is a snap, except for the damn vinegar flies. And the vinegar is tasty as well. What exactly is the vinegar mother, and is there any culinary application for it other than for making more vinegar? That's an excellent question. Um, in fact, one of the uh, uh, Harris Radio hosts is an expert vinegar maker, but I don't know if he talks about it on the air, so I won't call him out. Uh, the... Uh, when you make a vinegar, what happens is is you take uh, you basically take alcohol, right? It's you know somewhere around 10% alcohol, and you expose it to oxygen. When you expose it to oxygen, uh, acetyl acetobacter um, grow on acetic acid bacteria, grow on the top. Uh, well, they grow all throughout it, right? And they're turning the ethanol into uh, into acetic acid. Okay. Now, uh, like I say, they require oxygen to survive. <laughs> so what ends up happening is that uh, they tend to form uh, a bunch of what's called bacterial cellulose, right? And then they float, that stuff floats to the top and forms a layer. Now, the bacteria then, after they use up the initial uh, oxygen that's in the acetic, uh, in, the, in the stuff that you're turning into vinegar, after they use the initial oxygen up, they tend to only exist in large quantities, actively in large quantities, in the top of the forming vinegar, right, where the oxygen is. And so they sit there chilling on the top of the, of the vinegar, uh, making acetic acid from the ethanol, and at the same time uh, producing bacterial cellulose. 
And so that layer is basically uh, living bacteria and bacterial cellulose. So, yes, you can lift it off and use it to make more vinegar, right? Uh, or uh, it, it, there's a, it's, I've never heard of it done with, uh, with vinegar cultures before, with vinegar mothers, but there's kind of a well-known uh, Asian Filipino dessert called, uh, what is it called, nata, nata de coco, right? And what that is is, is it is the gel produced basically vinegar mother, right? And what they do is, is instead of having it in a jar that's tall, uh, right, or a jug and where they're trying to prevent, I guess, excess um, moisture loss and whatnot, they spread coconut water in, uh, like, in like a several-inch thick layer in large sheets. And they use a very specific uh, acetobacter, but this works with, you know, any, any uh, uh, acetic acid bacteria, and it grows a thick layer uh, of uh, bacterial cellulose on top, which is the same thing as vinegar mother. There, you know, this one it just happens to produce a lot more of it, so it makes it a lot thicker. So what they then do is they take uh, off the, uh, the top layer and they soak it, uh, and then they, I think they might even boil it, and they get rid of the acetic acid flavor, and they have the, this basically gel produced from the thing, and then they infuse it with syrups and, and make it sweet and stuff like that. So that's, uh, I believe, not, not that the cocoa, I think, but, the, but it's basically vinegar mother. So you could take the vinegar mother, soak it, uh, if you're gentle with it, because it's probably not going to be as strong, uh, and then maybe boil it in a syrup and make a, a gel out of it, uh, and you know, tell us what happens, compare it to, uh, <coughs> compare it to the one from Asia. Anyway, uh, so that's an interesting question. The third question that Brian has is, uh, oh, by the way, he used one of my favorite terms. He's like, I have uh, a lot of questions. And he says, I, I hope I'm not bogarting the radio show. Don't you? I, lo- I haven't heard bogarting in a long time. <laughs> yes. You like that one, right? Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Black garlic is all the rage. How is it made, and can I make it at home? All right. Uh, so for those of you that... Uh, haven't been paying attention to, like, hip new ingredients over the past couple of years. Uh, black garlic is a kind of garlic that, uh, is, you know, originated in Korea, uh, and people bring it over here, and it's black. Uh, uh, well, it's kind of brown. It's not really black. It's kind of brownish black, right? It's not, it's not really it's not black. Right, yeah. It's kind right. of like dark, dark, dark brown. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of ooey. It's still in, its, uh, in the clothes, and it's uh, ooey-gooey, and you spread it on things, uh, or do whatever you want with it, and it's very, very sweet, uh, and it's, uh, it has, like, uh, sugary, like, some people say, like, balsamic, but I don't really get, I don't really get that. Anyway, but, like, it's, it's what it is. It tastes like what it is, uh, and it's pretty good. People like it. Also, it doesn't make your breath stink the way that uh, regular uh, garlic does, and if I have time, more, more on that later, well, let's do it now. So, you know, we pressure cook garlic to do the uh, same thing, and uh, we're working on um, we're working on trying to get some funding to get uh, a garlic specialist to run some tests for us to verify why pressure cooked garlic doesn't make your breath stink because the stuff that's in garlic that um, stuff that's in garlic that does make your breath stink and is extremely pungent shouldn't be broken down by the temperatures of a pressure cooker, but apparently is. And he has some theories, but we have to run some tests. So more on that when we. And we do it. But uh, the way black garlic is made, people, and, and by the way, uh, I did some uh, little bit of research, and I haven't been able to uh, find anyone who definitively says what's going on. But people uh, say that it's fermented, 
And it's not fermented in the traditional sense, right, uh, because the temperatures are, here, are too high. Here's how it's made. You, uh, you basically keep the, uh, the garlic at whole. Uh, some people apparently soak it and some don't beforehand. You keep it in, and by the way, some people say soy sauce in it. Soy sauce is unnecessary, not needed in it, blah, blah, blah. Okay. You take the garlic and you keep it above uh, 140 degrees Fahrenheit, above 60 degrees Celsius, right? And, uh, but it, you can go all the way up, right, according to some of these uh, sites, all the way up to like 80 or 90 degrees Celsius and still have it, have it aged. I wouldn't do that. I would never take it, uh, you know, above the, the softening temperature of the garlic, which is going to be, um, you know, in the 70s or 80s. Uh, uh, Celsius. So, you know, I, I would keep it down lower where people recommend like 40, 50 Celsius, which is in the 100, uh, like 140 and a little above range. Don't go any below that because if you go below that, you can have bacteria growing on it, right? So they keep it hot and they keep it uh, basically from drying out so it doesn't desiccate uh, over time and they keep it for a long time. So on the order of 30 days. The higher the temperature, probably the the, uh, the less time it's going to take, but that's how they make it. So it's done hot uh, for a long time and then allowed to cool down, and, and, and there you have it. Some people uh, in, a, in a patent I read online, some people put charcoal in with it to try to absorb some of the odor, odors as it's being made. I don't know that that's truly necessary, but the easiest way to do it uh, is to use a dehydrator. So if you're lucky enough to have an Excalibur-style dehydrator, then you can... Um, so the sheet-style dehydrators are tough because you don't want it to actually dehydrate. So you want to kind of, like, like put plastic... Put, like, put the garlic in a container that's non-reactive, put plastic wrap or whatever over that container so that it doesn't lose all of its moisture. Now it's basically a controlled humidity environment. And then you put that into a dehydrator and you, you set it at, like... I'm going to make up a number, like 150, and you let that Fahrenheit, and you let it run for like 30 days, and, and there you have it. And so, um, so that's it. So it doesn't appear to be an enzyme reaction that's going on, uh, because of those temperatures, I'm pretty sure you're going to, at least, it maybe initially it is, but you're going to break them down, uh, broken down a lot of the enzymes over that period of time, with those temperatures, I would guess, right? And it's not uh, a fermentation in the sense that it's not bacterial or uh, yeast-derived. Uh, and this is why in the science literature it's just referred to as aged garlic. And I think what's happening is, is that a lot of the compounds in garlic are pretty unstable, and if they're just held at these temperatures for very long periods of time, can produce these kind of crazy things like, uh, like aged, aged garlic. Uh, what do you think? Pretty interesting, right, Sasha? Yeah. Uh... yeah. All right. So, uh, anyway, I was supposed to, like I say, be in Brooklyn. I am flying out tomorrow to Panama, where I'm doing a demo uh, in Panama City for a bunch of cooking school people. And I'm going to do an Ikijime demo there, uh, maybe using some of the new Ikijime stuff that I learned when I was working with Dave Chang uh, on his iPad app, after which I will be in Harvard next Tuesday giving a lecture to uh, bright, you know, bushy, whatever, bush, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed college students uh, about uh, the wonders of science in, uh, in cooking with uh, Harold McGee, which should be a blast. Unfortunately, that means I will not be doing a live show because it's during the actual uh, cooking issues time that we'll be uh, doing the lecture. So I look forward to speaking to you all in two weeks. Send us your questions. Cooking issues.
Hoy mi amor está de luto Hoy tengo en el alma una pena Y es por culpa de tu embrujo Hoy sé que tú ya no me quieres Y eso es lo que más me hiere Que tengo la camisa negra Y una pena que me duele Mal parece que solo me quedé Y fue pura todita tu mentira Que maldita mala suerte la mía Que aquel día te encontré Por beber el veneno Malevo de tu amor Yo quedé moribundo Y lleno Cama, cama, baby, te digo con disimulo que tengo la camisa negra y debajo. The following is a message from Nofa and Y. Do you dig local food? Love organic farmers? Do you crave to be part of a growing movement of consumers concerned with the state of our nation's food system? Then sign up today to take the Nofa and Y's Locavore Challenge this September. Join 5,000 other New York Locavores that are hungry, active, and ready to change our food system. Learn more at www.nylocavorechallenge.com.